You're listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, where we take the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world and give them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting, hoping to make fresh soil from which new life might spring. In this episode, our seventh, I'll be talking with Jason John about something psychologists call identity protective cognition. We'll discuss World Environment Day, the recent election, an update on the controversial proposed Adani mine, and dwell for a moment on this year's theme for National Reconciliation Week. Speaking of Reconciliation Week, as always, we're recording today on Gadigal Country, stolen land, land never ceded, land long beloved by God and for tens of thousands of years, the home of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and we dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land under Indigenous leadership, that it may remain and become a home for us and for all God's creatures. So I'm here with the Reverend, Dr. Jason John, a friend and colleague with a wealth of insight and experience. Good to have you, Jason. Thanks, Byron. Good to be here. Now, Jason, you bring your studies in zoology, environment and theology to your role as Uniting Earth Advocate, and they form the basis for your own musings at ecofaith.org, a website you maintain. You have a PhD that explored the connections between evolution, ecology, environmentalism and faith, and you've been a uni chaplain an environmental officer in the Queensland Uni Student Union, a researcher for the Queensland Synod Bioethics Committee, as well as a congregational minister with the Uniting Church. You've started a couple of eco-faith outdoor worship communities as part of your ministry with the Uniting Church, and you now live on the edge of a forest up in Belgium in a little house with your family and many neighbours, including goannas, echidnas, koalas and snakes. And since the kitchen has no walls, bandicoots often visit, followed by the carpet snake who likes to eat them. Jason has uh, produced a number of clips on YouTube that you can check out exploring ecology, environment, evolution, and faith, and you can find him on the channel Skinny Preacher 70. You can also find about 100 episodes of a radio show that he hosted and podcasted called Eco Faith on the Air, exploring everything related to ecology and Christianity in Australia. A number of those episodes consisted of a panel discussion with yours truly, and you can find them on SoundCloud. Jason is author of three books, Worshipping Evolution's God, which, as I understand, was the theological guts of your PhD. Yeah, that's right, yep. Second book, Easter Horror Stories, Recovering Jesus' Good News. Lovely title. <laughs> uh, and finally, A Walk in the Park, Adelaide's Eco-Faith Worship Community, which is a part of the history of the first few years of that community. So, welcome. It's great to have you. Tell us a bit more about Uniting Earth. What is it? What does it do? Why is it necessary? Yeah, well, it's been many things. We've gone through a few changes. I guess on the one hand, what it is, is two half-time people, uh, my colleague Jessica Morthorpe and myself. And we've recently moved into Uniting, which is a kind of agency part of the Uniting Church. And part of Uniting's brief is to oversee and, and help the advocacy and the justice work of the church to happen. So we're now part of the justice unit and amongst various other things that the church is engaged with, they've identified climate change as something really important, really important doesn't quite sell it, but something vital that we need to be engaged with. So I guess part of what we do is help, especially the church, to engage in prophetic advocacy uh, for climate action mm -hmm. and also for climate justice, so to make sure that everyone's sharing the burden of climate change and also the benefits of action to do our own climate action as a church so uh, you know ecological discipleship is another term that often gets used for that so that we can actually be involved in advocacy without being complete hypocrites and helping people discover how to tell the gospel stories in the context of climate change you know and apply Jesus teachings in the, the context of climate justice and so on so that kind of advocacy cleaning up our own backyard and then making sense of all of this to show Christians that it's important to be engaged and to show the wider world 
world that we hopefully have something to contribute. In a sense, I think that's something the church has always done throughout its history of trying to pay attention to the challenges and contexts that it finds itself in and has had to re-understand what it is to follow Jesus and to honour God in that context with the particular challenges that we face. And so yep. Uniting Earth is trying to do one part of that job today. That's right. Help yep. to resource and, and serve particularly the Uniting Church in Australia. But, I mean, you have resources that get used beyond just the Uniting Network. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, even though I said it's mostly within the church, like we have a very strong collaborative focus because obviously climate change and, and all environmental issues affect everybody. Like, mm. you know, we all live on the one planet. Yeah, we're looking to be a collaborative partner. One thing that sometimes comes up is obviously the world of difference between the early Christian communities 2,000 years ago and, and what Jesus was talking about. You know, he never addresses climate change, for example. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we find there are overwhelming parallels between the kind of power dynamics and injustices that were going on in his day and are going on in ours. So once Christians start to look at our faith tradition and the Bible through the kind of lens of climate change or, you know, the current inequality that we face, we find ourselves definitely on a continuum with the first people that began the Christian journey and find Jesus' teachings as relevant now as they were back then. And so many of the forces that Jesus opposed and which ended up killing him are still around today. That, That's right. You know, and, and drivers of climate change, forces like empire or greed and the temptation to see our life as consisting in the abundance of our possessions. Yep. Uh, temptations of using religion as a mechanism to gain power. You know, these these were temptations in Jesus' day. They were systems or tendencies, and they continue in different forms, but still in fundamentally the same issue in many ways. Absolutely. And, you know, to move, I guess, from the, the banal statements like God loves everybody, which everybody was happy to say in Jesus' day as they are in ours, but to then say, well, what does that actually look like then? Um, and what does that mean for our political systems and our economic systems and the way it operates suddenly becomes incredibly confrontational to people who are doing very well out of the way the world is now. Jesus' message has very often been something that has made the comfortable uncomfortable yes, and, and has turned things upside down. The last he puts first yep. and the first being put last in that great inversion that we find repeated throughout the gospel stories. Well, that could have been an excellent idea for our big idea, but we're going to go with something slightly different this episode. So in our first segment, what's the big idea? We explore a concept or a theory or a phrase that is useful for understanding the news and joining the dots between different things that are going on in our world and noticing the forces of change around us. And each week we're trying to build up a bit of a vocabulary for helping us unpack and understand what is going on in the world and our place within it so that we can be more just citizens, more faithful believers, more truly human. So in our first episode, Scott Sanders and I talked about the concept of common grace. In episode two, Brooke Prentice discussed just world belief. In our third episode, Lisa Sharon Harper talked about the core spiritual lies at the heart of many cultural narratives. Uh, Josh Doughton in episode four explored the epistemic priority on the oppressed that we listened first and most carefully to the weaker voice. Miriam Pepper in episode five explored the Murray-Darling River Basin in a whole episode dedicated to that issue. Last episode with Ben Thurley, we talked about the Overton window, a concept that may well come up again today and in future episodes. But today, we're going to be talking about identity protective cognition. So this is a fancy sounding phrase that uh, psychologists use to talk about the tendency we all have to think, to to use our cognition in ways that protect our current understanding of ourselves. 
So whenever we're confronted with new information that might challenge our picture of the world and particularly our sense of self, we all have a bias, a tendency to interpret that new information in ways that reinforce our existing commitments and assumptions and priorities. And this can lead us to ignoring some pieces of information, can lead us to denying certain claims, can lead us to uh, minimizing or recontextualizing them in order to render them more palatable to our current sense of self. This is a, a natural psychological defense mechanism we all have to keep our picture of ourself and our world at least somewhat coherent. But it can obviously be a problem if in protecting our identity, we sacrifice the truth and we actually lose a connection to what is really going on. One example that I experienced personally was uh, 10 years ago or 12 years ago now when I was diagnosed with cancer that uh, diagnosis of a growing tumor in my chest that was imminently threatening my life and that required urgent radical treatment was really quite a confronting piece of information that challenged my self-conception as a more or less healthy late 20-year-old and the, the status quo of my uh, youthful good health was suddenly and rudely interrupted and I had to work out what to do with that information. And there was a temptation there to try to push it to one side, to try to minimize it or delay looking at it or you know, in some way not allow that to unsettle my life and my sense of who I was. And there was a personal challenge for me to face up to that difficult truth. And in a similar way, I think all of us in different parts of life face truths that can disrupt our current sense of self. And obviously one of those truths that we keep coming back to in this podcast are the scientific realities of what we are doing to the living planet and the degradation we are seeing in so many of the Earth's systems and the disruption to the Earth's climate. And uh, that news, that diagnosis, many of us have a tendency to not really want to look at. We want to push it aside. We want to push it down our list of priorities. We want to pay less attention to it or treat it as in some ways not really worthy of our attention because we have a sense that if we do look at it too closely, that might really shift our sense of the world and ourself and the narratives by which we orient our lives. So Jason, which aspects of our identity, our sense of self, do you think might be threatened by learning about ecological degradation and climate disruption? So many out there, but I, th I mean, the first one that leapt to mind for me, I guess, was this idea that I'm a good person. Like We all want to think we're good people. And yet the more we learn about climate change and the way systems operate, the clearer it is that actually our actions and the shortcuts we take and the conveniences that we use and just the stuff we feel like doing has a disproportionate impact on the world particularly people like you and I that are able to sit here in a studio like this and a proportion of our listeners who are able to sit around listening to podcasts you know we're the ones that are actually doing quite well out of the system as it is and so to overthrow the system is also or to you know change the systems that needs to be changed is also really changing the benefits that we accrue without even realizing them later we'll talk about you know you don't want to focus too much on the individual and individual action, individual guilt, but it's certainly part of it, this idea that I grew up with, that I'm a good person, that I live in a, a fair world, as you and Brooke were talking about before, basically she'll be right, as long as we just, you know, more or less do the right thing and the good thing, the people in charge will make sure things work out for us, so yeah, it's all good. Yeah. I think I'm good and it's all good is a myth that's pretty strong, I think, for Australians who are doing well out of the way things are. Yeah, that's right. I think it's easy to not want to have to pay attention to red flags when, mm. you know, things seem to be going swimmingly. I wonder if uh, something you said at the end there might also point to another aspect of our sense of the world that is threatened, that those in charge are more or less looking after us 
Hmm. Even if they might also be, you know, doing dodgy things on the side or pursuing their own career, but that fundamentally they are serving to protect us. Yet if what the scientists tell us is true, there's a catastrophic failure, an enormous abdication of their responsibility to protect us as a nation, as a society from serious harms that are on such a scale as to threaten the continuity and good order of society Hmm. as a whole. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, like, on the one hand, in Australia, you know, there's a bit of a hobby of politician bashing and we all kind of are dismissive of them Mm. on the one hand, but we don't actually do much about it or hold them to account or demand that they change. And I think we like to believe, or maybe I like to believe, that the spectacularly bad things that we actually get to hear about are just aberrations in the same way that you might hear about a doctor in a hospital who's been performing abominably but you still like to think that you can go to hospital and you'll be looked after yeah we don't want to accept that maybe the whole system is fundamentally flawed yet only appears to be serving the common good yeah that's right and i think there's a particular temptation for some christians aware of the fact that many of our public figures own a christian faith a christian identity some of them more publicly than others and particularly wanting to think well of our brothers and sisters in the faith and to give them the benefit of the doubt and to acknowledge that it's a difficult job and a complex place to be in national or state leadership and so there is i think a strong tendency to want to treat politicians as good-hearted people doing their best to try to make the world a better place. And as you say, the apparent exceptions to that are a few bad apples. Forgetting the rest of that phrase, of course, that it's a few bad apples that spoil the whole bunch. (laughs) So whenever you refer to a few bad apples, you're implicitly saying that the whole bunch is spoiled. It's disruptive to that assumption to note just how catastrophically Australian climate policy in particular, but more broadly our whole range of ecological priorities and policies, how catastrophically they are failing. As uh, Ben Thurley and I explored last episode in quite some detail, just the, the huge disconnect between what is necessary to do anything like keeping us safe from climate disruptions and what is actually being attempted. There's such a large gap there that it's hard to speak of people making an honest attempt at keeping us safe. And so there's there's another part of our worldview that might be challenged by taking seriously this diagnosis. The idea that the people in charge are more or less acting for our good much of the time. Yeah. And I think wedded to that is, you know, the idea that thinking we're basically good people, life is basically fair. And yet, if anyone cares to Google wine glass and wealth or wine glass economy, you'll see that, you know, the wealth distribution in the world and it's not too different in Australia is it's not even a wine glass. Actually, it's like one of those really gimmicky glasses where almost all the volume is right at the top. So, you know, 20 percent of people in the world have 80% of the world's income, which flipped means that 80% of us are only got 20% of the world's wealth coming in. So all of the things that we talk about doing to try and address climate change, whether it's, you know, solar farms and expansions and things, we're trying to do that with the tiny scraps that are left over because the wealthy only get involved if it's going to generate even more wealth for them. And we can't wait for that to happen or we're you know, clearly in really big trouble. On the one hand, we do see that wealthy people are realising that coal's a dead industry and are moving out of it, but it needs to happen at the rate that the planet needs, not the rate that's profitable. So yeah, all those things, I think, that we're good, the world's good, it's all good and it's fair. Anything that confronts us too much with that, I think, is really hard to absorb. At the personal level, from if I'm confronted by the fact that I haven't really engaged in the domestic duties for the last couple of days, my instant reaction isn't to go... That's true. It's to find an excuse or a reason why that's not actually true because I'm a good person who does my fair share. 
Mm. And sometimes it can take 10 minutes of washing the dishes and thinking about the last few days of what's actually happened to go, oh yeah, you know what, <laughs> I'm not and I'm going to have to do something about it. And that process, which Christian theology has called repentance, mm. um, of coming to an awareness that we are part of the problem, that things are not okay, that the truth doesn't match our self-understanding, that things can and must change. Yep. That is, at one level, the heart of much of the Christian message, which speaks of the possibility of genuine change personally mm. and collectively, that it is possible for the world for our lives to be different. Yep. And that, I think, is a message that is both profoundly good news for those of us who may feel stuck in patterns of self-destructive behaviour or other destructive behaviour, but also profoundly confronting because mm. it leaves us with one less place to hide. Mm. Uh, yep. We can no longer speak of the inevitability of this failure or blame it simply on human nature or that's just the way that I am. Yep. Uh, the if, star sign defence. Yeah, yeah. If things are really just stuck as they are, then perhaps the human story is a tragedy where we are doomed to fail because necessarily we are greedy and necessarily we are the kind of creatures that inevitably foul our own nest and woe is us, but what can be done about it? Yeah. For me, it's been learning more about the long history of the first peoples of this land that has really quite profoundly challenged that assumption for me and, and any deeply misanthropic notion that humans inevitably destroy their own environment because for 65,000 years the first peoples of this land managed to live more or less in a state not I don't want to romanticize it as perfect harmony or no ecological uh, alterations but they're able to do it without undermining the conditions of their own thriving they managed to survive for tens of thousands of years and without so fouling their own nest as for it to become unlivable. Yeah, Jared Diamond's documented different cultures through history, some of which did succumb to ecological collapse, but others which didn't. And he puts it really well, I think, that it is a choice. And now more than ever, we have the information that we need to make that choice. A lot of those cultures didn't realise till it was nearly too late that they needed to do something. And about half of them seems they did. But yeah, it's not inevitable. There's plenty of examples of narratives of hopelessness, but then there's also examples of where people have refused to live with the narrative and, you know, kind of hung on and pushed long enough till suddenly that narrative seems nonsensical. Um, and maybe that's part of what you and Ben were talking about, that something that seemed impossible suddenly now seems obvious yes, to us. Yes, the shifting of something from crazy into quite possible. Yeah, and I think the other challenge we have is when you're talking about repentance, it's such a strong word, you know, literally turn around. And I think still what many of us are hoping for, certainly our institutions, is that climate change can be dealt with with a bit of tweaking, mm. not a the kind of full-scale repentance that scientists are saying we need, and in fact have been for 30 years. So how do we turn around the whole global narrative yeah, and free up the resources we need to act on this and to make sure that everybody benefits from that action, not just people who have already got lots. Yes, because that can be another threat to our sense of self and to our sense of a coherent world that may tempt us into identity protective cognition. If we get the sense that taking serious action to care for our common home is going to leave us significantly worse off mm. wherever we might feel we currently land in the pecking order, however close to the top of the pile we currently are, if it sounds like some of the solutions being proposed are going to push us further down the pile, then it's tempting to reject the whole idea. Yeah because it might cost me not just money, but it might cost me status or power or my place in the world. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, in a very real way, money, but not just the greedy end of money, but the can I keep the roof over my head, feed the kids and, you know, will I have anything when I'm older to keep me going again? Because many of us are living in that narrow wine glass, narrow stem part of the wine glass. And instead of changing the shape of the vessel, we're worried that we'll slide ever more rapidly down to the bottom. And, you know, there's enough imagery out there to show us what the bottom of the wine glass looks like. And we don't want to end up there. Yes. So, not to preempt later discussions, but in the face of identity protective cognition, it's worth also just pondering for a second about what forms of identity may help us face difficult truths. Perhaps there are some identities, some convictions, some beliefs and practices that train us in opening ourselves to hard truths about ourselves and the world. And that may be something for you as a listener to consider. What, are, what Do you have any practices in your life, any deep assumptions that you think help you to face hard truths in your life? Because in a rapidly warming world, there are many hard truths that we all need to face up to pretty quickly. So some of the difficult truths we have to face are not simply about how the carbon cycle works, mm. but are about human ecology and human psychology, the ways that we so often prefer to live in a comfortable lie than face difficult truths. Not simply just carbon that we're addicted to, mm. It's some of these narratives like my life is fundamentally going well. Our society is more or less doing okay. Our leaders are looking after us. This is a democracy. Yeah. (laughs) One part of society that's tasked with pointing us towards relevant truths is the news media. And this whole podcast is an exploration of and response to stories in the media and those that we might have missed, but which are important enough for us to pay attention to. And so I'm wondering, Jason, as a bit of an interlude, do you have a pet peeve about the media? One detail that they keep on getting wrong or a practice they do that distorts things or something that gets forgotten? Yeah, look, generally I'd say, depending on the media, but papers that I know lots of people read, there seems to be this constant dynamic where when people try and engage us with climate change or other issues of justice, but we'll stick with climate change and constantly represented as the crazy fringe. Whereas we know they're actually the mainstream of science. And in fact, often even if you're talking about IPCC reports, you're the conservative part of scientific predictions about where we're heading. But it's it's treated as a still somehow this loony left-wing fringe conspiracy out to destroy the Australian way of life. It just seems relentless. And so it starts to feel like it wouldn't matter how well you told the story of what's going on and what we can do about it. To get that message out to most people through the mainstream media is almost impossible. And it, it's got to be beyond lazy reporting or not understanding the facts. It's got to be more deliberate than that. And yet still... Most people in Australia want climate action. It's not even the media following the majority. Clearly, there's some other force at play determining the way these stories are going to be told. And yeah, and at that point, I think you've got to look beyond just the proclivities of individual journalists or even how journalists are trained. I mean, there may be issues there around false balance and so on, but you really need to look at media ownership and yep. notice that Australia's media is dominated by for-profit corporations, one in particular, the News Corp, and the owners of those corporations have their own interests and appoint their own editors and often own those corporations not simply to make money, but in order to influence society in ways that enable them to make more money. And that brings with it an inherent conservative bias to a lot of the for-profit news media. Conservative in the sense that they don't want the fundamental conditions of society 
likely to change because they were the conditions that enabled the owners of those corporations to become incredibly wealthy. So you're not going to find a strong critique of that wine glass economics you were talking about, the massive inequality between the haves and the have-nots, the 1% and the 99 or however you want to articulate the issue of massive social inequality and with it massive disparities in power. You're not going to find a critique of that in the Murdoch press. No. And I remember hearing a comment once that there was no editorial interference in the Murdoch press. Then I thought, well, that's probably true because when you appoint the editors, you don't need to interfere with them. You're choosing who you employ in the first place. Precisely. And that's always just worth keeping in mind that that's one of the fundamental conditions within which a lot of the media operates. We come to our second segment, What's Going On? This is the part of the show where we explore some of the stories that have been in the news over the last few weeks. Stories that affect large numbers of people in profound ways. Stories that are about the forces that are shaping our society at the moment. Stories that get beyond the daily froth and bubble of gaff and gotcha. But stories that might not have dominated the front page or didn't get the attention or had aspects that were ignored that we think are important. Our first story is one that Jason wrote about recently for Common Grace for World Environment Day. And I'm wondering, Jason, if you want to give us a bit of an introduction to that story and some of your reflections upon it. Yeah, it's a a policy paper by Breakthrough, the National Centre for Climate Restoration. Probably haven't heard of them. I hadn't. But um, I'll tell you a little bit about who wrote it in a second. Uh, It's called Existential Climate-Related Security Risk. And uh, if that doesn't sound ominous enough, the conclusion when they're looking at a possible scenario for the world in 2050 talks about a world in which the scale of destruction is beyond our capacity to model with a high likelihood of human civilization coming to an end. So that's the kind of paper that you read the pressy of and then switch over to to, you know let's read something else and and particularly when you realize you know it wasn't written by a a couple of hippies this is coming from a former oil executive former executive chair of the australian coal association and the forward is by the former chief of the australian defense force so these are people one of whom has been heavily involved in industry and one in the armed forces and the kind of interesting one of the interesting points they make is that we tend to focus on the more conservative end of the climate models and the ones that are maybe more likely at the moment uh, given the IPCC modelling, although they point out that that's usually shown to be optimistic by the time of the next IPCC report. Uh, But they also say, you know, you can't just look at the average and work out the most likely model. You've also got to think about, well, what if it's one of the models that's a little bit further ahead? And so along with others, they talk about, you know, the kind of World War II scale approach that we need to this in terms of the change in the economy that's required, the short time frame that we have to act. So their solution is not an armed response, but to say it would take something like the security forces and the armed forces to be repurposed to bring about the kind of changes in economies, the infrastructure that's needed, the manufacturing needs to be turned over to a massive re-kitting for renewables in the way that it was for weapons in the past. It's quite short. It's a really interesting, if not (laughs) confronting read. But what I found really interesting in it is that Admiral Chris Barry, who's the former defence chief, in the context of all of this discussion about, uh, you know, the kind of response that's needed, says it's not a technological or a scientific problem. At its root, this is a question of humanity's social political values. So in other words, the stuff that Byron and I were talking about before. Who are we? What do we want to be? What, what are our values? The stories that we live by. The stories we live by, that's right. And he goes on to say we need a social tipping point that flips our thinking before we reach these physical tipping points in the climate system. So although they're kind of tooling up for an industrial scale response, he's saying that the first step of that or the crucial step of that is to flip the way that we think. As a minister and, and writing for Common Grace, which is a, a network of Christians that see close connections 
tensions between Jesus and justice. So it's just, you know, the question I had for us was, well, what have we got to contribute to that? Can we actually imagine a different world? Uh, can we imagine a social tipping point having happened? For Christians, I think that involves things like Jesus' teachings about the abundance of our possessions, but also on a national scale, what does it mean to do for other nations as we would want them to do for us if things were flipped? Zacchaeus in the Gospels is the guy who, when he was converted, gave away half his wealth, but also made reparations to anyone that he'd defrauded. What does it look like in the context of climate change if nations were to act like that towards each other? Jesus gives the warning about the rich man who hoards up all his wealth in his barn instead of being generous with it. What does that mean for us? Even that story that I really find has a lot of resonance of the prodigal son who goes off and wastes all the family's resources, but eventually repents and goes back humbly to the family. And, you know, I see nations like Australia have done that. We've burnt through a whole lot of carbon. Are we going to turn around and repent and be a decent member of the earth family so yeah it's a really interesting read because while i can't imagine myself becoming part of the security forces and the industrial scale response i hope that i can be part of helping us change the narrative of what we say about humanity and and where we're heading take that costly step of repentance that it's going to cost for us I mean, I think if I had to summarise two of the big lessons that I feel I've learned in, say, the last decade, one from science, one probably from history more than anything else. From science, natural systems can change far faster and more radically than most people realise. And that's partly what this new paper from Ian Dunlop and David Spratt from the Breakthrough Institute is pointing out, that we can't be apathetic or assume a benign set of Earth systems, that it's quite possible for change to happen further and faster than we anticipate. But also, I think from history, human systems can change far further and faster than most people anticipate. Culture is actually more malleable. Institutions are less inevitable, permanent, stable than they appear. Another world is possible, both ecologically, that's a dangerous threat. Another world that is far less habitable, less welcoming to life as we currently know it is possible. But another social world is possible too. It's not inevitable that we keep following the same assumptions, the same stories, the same path. And so, as Jason was just talking about, finding not just scientifically where the ecological tipping points might be, where ecosystems shift suddenly and irreversibly to a different state, but where are the social tipping points? Where are those parts of human society that can actually change almost overnight? Mm. Where what seems inevitable or impossible can shift to being very possible. I guess we're back to the Overton window again here. Yeah. Just quickly, given that the theme of World Environment Day is pollution, and my colleague Jessica put together some stats and information around air pollution. And even though most of the images we see of it are from China, it's a significant issue here in Australia. I remember the first time I came to Sydney looking down a rail line and realising that I actually couldn't not just see to the end of it, but I couldn't see more than a few hundred metres because of the smog and realising that something that was invisible all around me suddenly I could see. And harking back to what we were saying earlier in the program, the conclusion from some ACF research into pollution and where the pollution emitting sources are in Australia, the basic conclusion is if you want to live somewhere that's not polluted, get rich because almost all the major pollution sources are near poor people, uh, which is probably no surprise when you think about it, but again, harkens into that consequence of all the stuff that we're consuming isn't equally distributed, not just globally, but even within a, a city like Sydney or a state like New South Wales. Yeah, and there's been a lot of new research come out about the effects of air pollution just in the last few mm. years. I still don't think have been widely understood and appreciated the safe limits of where air pollution starts to affect human health 
keep being lowered as more and more of the effects of air pollution on the body are found. It's not just the lungs, but recent studies, uh, you know, I started a list a few weeks ago and it's almost every organ in the, every major organ in the human body is affected by particulate air pollution. We mentioned back in the first episode with Scott Sanders, the statistic from the World Health Organization that 95% of the world's population live in places where the air quality is worse than the WHO recommended guidelines. Air pollution is far bigger and more immediate problem than many people are aware of. That's certainly true. Another major event that has occurred since our last episode that has certainly generated its fair share of news stories has been the election. And I'd like to share a reflection that I put together that was my response. One of my favourite books is a story of growing troubles aboard a marine expedition, culminating with the untimely loss of the vessel and the inevitable recriminations in its aftermath. The narrative is filled with foreshadowing, humour and a growing sense of impending doom. Yet despite the sad outcome being clear from the start, it is the emphatic contingency of the tragedy that lends it real pathos. It didn't have to be this way. The diverse cast of characters could have made different choices that avoided the sinking of their seagoing craft. It was not nature or fate or karma that caused their downfall. Their drama was completely self-inflicted. I'm talking of Pamela Allen's classic children's book, Who Sank the Boat, written in 1982. In it, five animal friends climb into a rowboat, a cow, a donkey, a sheep, a pig, and a tiny little mouse. Many listeners are probably familiar with it. As each gets in, the gunwales get progressively closer to the surface of the bay, and once the smallest passenger embarks, the fateful threshold is crossed, and the boat sinks. Allocating responsibility for the disaster is left to the reader. The obvious answer, and the one many children first reach, is that the culprit was the rodent, whose arrival on board is coincident with the disaster, the little mouse who was last to get in. Yet throughout, the story gently points towards the true answer, that the animal's troubles are the cumulative result of passing a critical threshold towards which all had contributed, though not equally. This lesson is one that many adults struggle to grasp, at least when it comes to situations that may be, on the surface, more complex than a friendly jaunt on the bay. Whether it's national contributions to climate disruption, the allocation of budget priorities, the causes of a fatal vehicle collision, or the results of a national election. And that's this last one that I want to focus on. After the recent election, I had a number of friends write to me to check to see if I was going okay. Now, I'm grateful for their concern, and I appreciate the care that we take with one another in light of potentially distressing events. And in the days after the election, I was indeed doing a fair bit of processing. And it was upsetting to see the results coming in. To witness the electorate granting another term to a cold-loving, corrupt government with a penchant for exploiting xenophobic anxiety, especially around Islam and immigration. One willing to do deals with the far right to whip up nationalism and deepen religious divides in a campaign riddled with untruths and fear. Even after years of failed economic promises and worsening conditions for the poor, after the plutocrats have increased their takings and gained manifold returns on their investment in buying political power, after massive banking scandals under lax oversight, after pushing environmental and climate concerns to the side, loosening regulations that protect all of us, especially the vulnerable, even with lie after lie and a corporate press all too willing to turn a blind eye or even to justify these many faults, nonetheless, voters swung towards the government, giving the incumbent an increased grasp on power and providing ammunition to his backers to push through more extreme changes this term. Now it looks like Adani keeps its friends in high places. Looks like the wrong kind of refugee can expect ongoing harsh and violent treatment. That the banks remain unlikely to be properly held to account. That attacks on Muslims could well worsen while the PM's co-religionists will continue to get special treatment. 
tax regulation and enforcement or its lack will shift even more in favour of the wealthy and suffering will likely increase for the poor and for the poor earth. It's all pretty depressing, to be honest. Especially since Prime Minister Modi has his hands on nuclear weapons and is willing to stoke conflict with nuclear-armed Pakistan for electoral advantage. Or did you think I was talking about the Australian election? My point is, there are forces and patterns at work in Australia that are bigger than just Australia, which is why I was able to describe the Indian elections in terms that would have been remarkably familiar to many Australians. I could have drawn similar parallels with recent elections in Brazil or the EU or the Philippines, Indonesia, Israel, Belgium and more, to say nothing of Trump's US. Around the world, there's been a recent and pretty consistent shift towards anti-immigrant nationalist and populist right-wing parties willing to use violent rhetoric while implementing business and tax policies that are favourable to the already wealthy. The trends are deeply concerning. The undermining of international cooperation, rises in military spending, demonisation of minorities, resurgence of fossil fuel influence, worsening inequality, all amidst a backdrop of rapidly deteriorating biospheric health, which none of these trends will help. Such ill winds are not absent in Australia's political climate, thus any attempt to understand the recent election that focuses on purely local factors is insufficient. It's a looking at the mouse rather than at the donkey and the cow and the sheep and the pig. And so in recent weeks, I've read dozens and dozens of hot takes on the Australian federal election. Many had important points to make, from the influence of $60 million of Palmer-funded lying attack ads that never intended to win a seat so much as by a government, to the ability of the Murdoch press to ensure that the ALP failed to convey its policies to rural and regional voters about a just transition for the resources sector, from where the get-up's personal vendettas against government ministers backfired, to where the Stoppadani's convoy to regional Queensland backfired, from a coalition fear campaign about imaginary ALP taxes, to the personal likability of Shorten versus Morrison, from the politicisation of religious freedom by churches that have twice campaigned against putting religious freedom in the Constitution, an interesting point of history that's worth looking up, to the need for the climate movement to keep integrating its methods, members and modus operandi with a fully orbed vision of racial, class and gender justice. All these factors likely had their place. But I didn't see many, in the Australian press at least, linking the results to global trends and shifts. And so when people have asked me for my take on the election, I was initially reluctant to offer one. Elections are complex things, and reducing the outcome, especially an unexpected outcome, to a single cause can often obscure as much as it reveals. It risks fingering the mouse that may have shifted a 51-49 ALP victory to a 49-51 coalition one, while ignoring the pig, sheep, donkeys and cows that shape the broader structures, convictions and priorities of society. If you're interested in more than the tactical question of how that last patch of undecided voters were persuaded, then perhaps it's better we focus our attention on strategic questions. Why is it that so many people are willing to vote for parties that promise to burn the future? How are policies that benefit a tiny wealthy minority sold to electorates who will by and large suffer under them? Where are the sources of identity and belonging that hold people together and drive them apart? What are the deep stories that we live and even die by? So that was quite a lengthy little reflection on the election. When I read it on Facebook, you certainly sucked me in. I thought you were talking about the Australian election till I got to the nuclear button. I was like, oh, what? Yeah, well, of so, course, yeah, I, I think, was. I think it well. makes that point well, yeah. And, uh, and, and you're right, there was a whole lot of speculation going on about that 1% part of it and not all the rest of it that gets it to that final tipping point. Given that we're not now in the final week or two of an election where that 1% is all that people want to talk about, with years ahead of us of another coalition government, 
it really is the time for pulling back and thinking about that bigger picture, thinking about the larger stories and trends, the stories that we live by that we've been talking about, the assumptions and narratives, the reasons why we engage in that identity protective cognition. Yeah the assumptions about ourselves and our society that are so deeply threatened by the realities of our time that we would prefer to live a convenient fantasy than face the truth, as well as asking about what are the resources for nurturing identities and communities that are able to wrestle with that, able to fully face the diagnoses and embrace the kinds of treatments that are necessary. So having thoroughly summarised the election in a matter of minutes... (laughs) (laughs) Or, on on the contrary, acknowledged that all attempts at a single cause explanation of such a complex event are likely to be exercises in self-justification. People scoring quick political points by saying that their pet issue was the cause, was the mouse. Let's move on. Let's have another little interlude. Jason, when have you changed your mind over something as an adult? Something in how you view the world, how you live your life? And what were some of the reasons for that? Yeah, well, I guess interestingly enough, you know, probably the major one was in deciding to become a Christian in my early 20s. And some of that was about the narrative I'd always had of being a good person. And then life events came along that confronted me with the fact that actually that's not always true. So I guess that was the kind of crack that made me then open to other ways of understanding myself and life. I'd had a long-term Christian friend who'd kept arguing with me about things for ages But also partly I'd taken a year off because I'd just finished my honours degree, was deciding where to do my PhD. So I actually had the time to stop and think and really get to the bottom of yeah what I thought about myself and the world and I guess that's something we haven't talked about so far but you know in the incredibly fast-paced world in which many of us live where we're confronted by so many choices we have to make about so many things the luxury of being able to sit back and really you know engage with these deeper questions of either ourselves or humanity and long-term future paths is, is really hard to come by and so I guess you know that's where the role of leadership is to actually if we had some national leaders who were helping us do that well, it would be really, really useful. A second kind of change came not too long after that, I guess, when I moved from a very exclusive Christianity, almost tribal based around, you know, who's in, who's out, to a much more open understanding that God loves people, all people, and isn't a work in all people, and we're all in this together. And some of us deliberately align ourselves with Jesus and his teachings and try and apply it. But, you know, we're all working to make this beautiful planet to restore it and and protect it together, which I guess, you know, again, you know, we didn't mention so much at the start, but that part of the identity that we're encouraged to have is that there's us and there's them and that it doesn't matter too much if things aren't going great for them, but whether that's gender, religion, economic equality, race, um, you know, as long as we're okay and our lot. So, yeah, that was two pretty major transformations in the way I understood myself and the world very fast on top of each other, largely because I finally had the luxury of actually being able to think about it and not not all the stuff that's usually in front of our face all the time. Yeah, and perhaps that too speaks to identity protective cognition, that one of the reasons that we have that defensive mechanism is to prevent us from being paralysed into inaction by new information that we haven't the space or time to process yet. It speaks to the importance of a society in which people's lives are not so busy, that the stresses they face are not so great, Mm. that all they can do is just survive day to day and they don't have that luxury that you spoke of, which is in reality a deep necessity, a human need, Um, the need to be able to process new information and to take it in and digest it 
and not simply be so overwhelmed by it that we either shut down or just pick the bits of information that are congruent with our current assumptions, which is, you know, the great temptation with the 24-7 media cycle and social media bubbles and uh, the availability of news sources that will engage in whichever confirmation bias you currently happen to have. Yeah. And so I think even your story there of having the, the space to reconsider some of the deep questions about God and yourself and life speaks to that as a, a deep human need and a, a social good. Mm. And, and some, of the, some of that space was literally space. Like I travelled with a Catholic friend from Adelaide to Tasmania on a mostly by push bike and things. So there were just hours where there was nothing to distract us. And of course, there were mobile phones back then and things. And so I think, yeah, we've got some people who are too busy trying to survive to engage with this. And then there's a whole bunch of people like me that actually could carve out more time, but the relentless pressure not to is just often too much like you know i live in the forest as you said at the start and yet the mobile phone follows me into the forest and uh, even without the mortgage hanging over my head the addictiveness of technology is ever present and it's not just a distraction it's a program distraction which is why silicon valley executives don't let their kids have mobile devices because they know how much effort goes into manipulating us through them Mm. to exactly not sit back and think about transformation of of the world and ourselves uh you know except through some meditation app perhaps yeah that's right so perhaps another addiction that we may need a 12-step program to cure ourselves of the Mm. addiction of more ever more information without the time for digestion and and junk you know we know junk food's bad for us you can have it as a treat but you can't live off it and yet yeah we absorb so much junk information and yeah Another story in the news recently, particularly relevant in light of the recent election, is the Adani Carmichael coal mine, a proposed coal mine in Queensland that many of our listeners are probably quite familiar with. In case you're not, it's one of the largest proposed coal mines in the world, at least as initially proposed. It's gone on a roller coaster ride over the last five or six years with responsibility for decisions about it being batted backwards and forwards between different governments and it becoming quite a political football and a potent symbol of the climate movement's growing influence as what once seemed inevitable, the ongoing expansion of the coal industry in Australia, has now become contested and this mine has become symbolic of that. It's also strategic as the first mine in a whole new coal basin, the Galilee Coal Basin, And if it goes ahead, then the infrastructure required to extract the coal and move the coal from the basin to the coal ports will enable a number of other mines in the area to potentially also open up. So both symbolically and strategically, this mine is important for both the climate movement and the coal industry. And so it really has become quite a battleground. The news this week, apart from the Queensland Labor government seeking to push through more rapidly its final couple of approvals, perhaps out of fear that the disastrous election result for the ALP at the federal election in Queensland specifically, in fear that that may flow on to a bad result for the current ALP government when they face election next year and wanting to try to put this Adani issue to bed. So it it looks like the final hurdles, regulative hurdles for the coal mine may well fall in the next few weeks. And that will just leave the biggest hurdle of all, namely, will the mine be financially viable to go ahead? A number of articles that have come out in recent days have crunched these numbers and put forward the case that's been said before, but perhaps never quite so cogently and persuasively as these articles, that the mine simply will not make a profit under current economic conditions. That when you add up all the costs and all the benefits, this would be a losing proposition. So the question then is, why hasn't this been mothballed already? 
what is going on? Why is the Adani Corporation led by Mr. Adani? Why are they pushing ahead with this project? Or at least appearing to. And various theories have been put forward from the Adani Corporation seeking compensation if and when um, an Australian or or state government uh, denies approvals for the mine after they've already sunk so much into it through to still holding out the hope of further government subsidies. And perhaps that's become more likely with the re-election of the coalition government federally. This is a story that just keeps on keeping on. And despite all the major banks in the world having walked away from financing this mine, and despite now many of the world's largest insurance corporations also ruling out insuring this mine, nonetheless, the Adani Corporation and the federal government continue to insist that work will begin on it any day now once the final approvals are received and so it's it's really quite baffling just what is going on and Jason I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this story. I haven't got anything to add beyond what you've said in terms of exactly what's going on because you know how would I know but certainly the numbers don't seem to add up and particularly that Blomberg article I found persuasive because it's using numbers from industry itself it's not making them up so you know in the industry's own figures it seems unlikely to proceed. They made a couple of other points. Um, and as of, always, we'll be putting all the links to these articles in the show notes. Yeah. They made another point, which to the extent that I agree with them, I found quite sad, which was that if the Adani mine doesn't go ahead, it won't be because it's bad for the environment. It'll be because it's not economically viable. And hasn't that just been the case throughout our recent history? And I wish we could get to the point where we would just say, no, that's actually just bad for the planet. We're not going to do it. But I think what's missing from that analysis is that the mine probably would have gone ahead without environmental protesters and environmental legal challenges and so on, you know, years ago, even if it subsequently was shown to be not economically viable. But by then we would have had a big hole in the ground, threatened groundwater, more emissions into the atmosphere, bigger delay in the solar industry. So I think even though they don't tell the story that way, it actually highlights the great value of people coming together to protest things that they know are wrong, even if all it does is hold the ground for the years that it takes until sanity prevails. And we see that in you know the context of the climate challenge ahead of us, this doesn't make economic sense. You know The same thing happened in Gloucester. It just seemed inconceivable that they would stop coal seam gas coming to their town at a time when coal seam gas was rapidly expanding the government was right behind it. There was all kind of dodginess that's, you know, since come to light. And yet they kind of held them back long enough and challenged the figures and established the environmental problems until they got to the point where it was decided that it was uneconomical. But then when the coal mine expansion of Rocky Hill was looked at, by that time, actually, the courts did take into account the fact that this mine mm. would have uh, environmental implications in terms of climate change and that that was a legitimate basis on which to oppose its expansion knocked it on the head that's now become a precedent around the world so again it was a group of people stopping a mine that definitely would have gone ahead if no one had said anything and wrecked an incredible landscape and groundwater threatened a groundwater supply before eventually being decided it was uneconomical yes i don't know i found that article was kind of seemed to be pushing the line of ecology and environment's kind of irrelevant it all comes down to figures but actually i don't think that's been the case in recent australian history Yeah, that's right. And that second mine you were just referring to is the decision by the New South Wales Land and Environment Court that we discussed on a previous episode. Quite a groundbreaking decision that, as you say, for the first time anywhere in Australian jurisdiction, certainly, and and I think in the world, world, uh, a court recognising the obligation 
to consider climate impacts when approving a piece of coal infrastructure which seems like a no-brainer, but for a long time, the argument has been used that I call the, the drug dealer's defence, that if we're not building it here, then someone else, somewhere else, mm. will do so. And so it was seen that by the courts and the legal system that preventing any one piece of coal infrastructure wasn't going to have an impact on climate. And so therefore, climate ought not to be a consideration in the legal approval of a piece of coal infrastructure. Yeah. And as you're saying, Jason, the people power is a key part of this story. You can perhaps overclaim what has been achieved when you do also need to look at the, the shifting economics that has mm. happened. But at the same time, economics alone is insufficient. Change happens in complex ways. The movements of people showing mass opposition have both a symbolic import in, in terms of changing the narratives that we live by and the stories and what the, the over the window of what seems normal and natural and acceptable but they also have quite practical implications for corporations of introducing delays and further costs and can sometimes shift the economics of a project just by themselves. Mm. Companies have to factor in the cost of losing a social license, losing the support of a local community, the extra challenges that that can bring to an extractive industry. And certainly in the case of Gloucester, having people actually reading the 700-page reports that are put in as the environmental impact statement demonstrating that that is not true, likely deliberately so, but therefore being able to insist that the company actually does what's required, which is then so expensive that they don't go ahead because some of these things, the profitability is quite marginal. So if you can get away with not actually doing what you're legally required to do, it might make you money. But if you're going to have to actually follow the law, it tips it over to the other side. That's right. So governments will often give sweetheart deals or fail to fully apply environmental regulations. Governments will effectively break their own rules in Mm. order to enable industries that they want to go ahead to go ahead. Mm. And so people power can come in by effectively forcing a government to follow its own rules. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, often the company's allowed to monitor itself. So if there's citizens doing monitoring as well and reading the figures, then suddenly it's a whole different ballgame. I think you can also see the influence of people power, of of social movements, of activists, uh, of ordinary citizens doing things in the response of governments and corporations seeking to limit our ability to act. Mm. So on the one hand, we have uh, more stories uh, just recently of Adani putting pressure on the ABC, seeking to get them to pull an unfavorable story before it was published, knowing that, you know, further bad publicity will actually harm their financial interests. But also in recent government regulations, seeking to increase penalties on protesters, seeking to decrease the ability of civil society, environmental organisations to speak out Mm. and and to advocate. And in general, seeking to limit the ability of people power to have an influence on economic decisions. Mm. And so the very fact that these changes get made shows that democracy may not be a reality in Australia but it's also not an idea that can be entirely ignored. Mm. Yep. And for me, democracy means millions of voices speaking louder than millions of dollars. And where we see the opposite, where we see millions of dollars speaking louder than millions of voices, that's when you know we're not really in a democracy. 
uh, Jason referenced earlier that perhaps one of the myths that we live by is the idea that we are in a democracy, that that's one of the things that gets challenged by paying attention to the dynamics around climate politics and the politics of fossil fuel extraction in Australia, where we see public opinion consistently overridden or ignored or marginalised in order to favour these very profitable industries whose profits flow to the pockets of the few and whose expenses are borne by the many. And so decisions that are made that are effectively anti-democratic, not just because most people don't want it to happen, but because they are being made to serve the millions of dollars rather than the millions of people. Our next story is that recently it was National Reconciliation Week. This is a week marked each year in Australia between the 27th of May, which was the anniversary of the 1967 referendum extending full citizenship rights to Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, And the 3rd of June, which is Mabo Day, the anniversary of the victory of Eddie Mabo in the High Court decision around native title and uh, overturning Terra Nullius. And so during National Reconciliation Week each year, there is a theme. And this year's theme is Grounded in Truth, Walk Together in Courage. And for this year's National Reconciliation Week, Common Grace has put together a series of reflections, largely written by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but a couple of them written by Second Peoples. And these cover a range of aspects of Australian life and history that many Australians are not yet aware of, or that are not widely understood and appreciated, or that are even actively denied. And so they come under the headings of stolen land, stolen generations, stolen wages, massacres, stolen lives, closing the gap, and stolen lives, Aboriginal deaths in custody. And so if you go to the Common Grace website, www.commongrace.org.au, uh, you can follow the link through to the Reconciliation Week resources there. So you can go to the Common Grace website, put slash reconciliation underscore week underscore 2019, and you'll see links to each of those reflections. Each reflection also comes with a prayer and a series of actions that you might like to look at. We'll talk more about those in a few minutes. But I just wanted to reflect briefly on my experience of writing that reflection. Uh, my mind was on stolen wages. I went through the entirety of my schooling, my time in university and my 20s, never having even heard of the concept that in Australia there was outright slavery, there was widespread unpaid and forced labour, there was underpaid labour, and that there are still large numbers of Aboriginal people alive today who are promised wages that they never received. And that these, in some, amount to hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars in unpaid wages. This is one of many serious injustices in the history of this land that we now call Australia. This really challenged so many of the stereotypes that we often hear, either explicitly or implied in Australian society. You know, the racist stereotype of Aboriginal people as lazy, government dependents, leeching off the public purse, turns out to be precisely the opposite of the historical reality. In fact, the governments of this land and many of the major land owners who turned into the, some of the wealthy families of, of this land for over a century were the ones leeching off hard-working black labourers, often who had to work against their will and often for little or no pay in quite atrocious conditions. And so I do encourage you to go onto the Common Grace website and check out those reflections and mark on your calendars for next year, Reconciliation Week. Embrace that week as an opportunity to keep being grounded in the truth, as this year's theme suggested. 
if we're going to live in the truth, if we're going to not just engage in identity protective cognition, then we need to face the facts. Uh, We've spent quite a bit of time on this podcast talking about the facts of the ecological degradation and climate disruption, but also the facts for those of us in this land of our history and the ongoing unreconciled relationship with the First Peoples of the land. And there's a story that caught my attention in these last couple of weeks that actually joins together some of the things we've just been talking about to do with climate disruption and the serious challenges that that's already bringing to people around the world with the ongoing injustices towards Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people. It's a story reported in a a few media sources, but which didn't get a great deal of attention. I'm looking at a story on the website The Conversation, whose headline is Torres Strait Islanders Ask UN to Hold Australia to Account on Climate Human Rights Abuses. And the story here is that there's a group of Torres Strait Islanders who have lodged a climate change case with the UN Human Rights Committee against the Australian Federal Government. Now, this is the first time the Australian Government has been taken to the UN for their failure to take action on climate change. The charge, the case that's being brought by these islanders is that the government is failing to uphold their fundamental human rights, in this case, their right to a land and a culture that doesn't get displaced by sea level rise. Because many of the Torres Strait Islands, like many other Pacific Islands, are low-lying sand atolls or, or coral atolls that are very vulnerable to even small changes in sea level. And like many other islands in the Western Pacific, the Torres Strait Islands are facing some of the fastest rates of sea level rise in the world. Some of the communities in the Torres Strait face king tide events in which there is overwash, in which waves wash into and through their communities. And this has all kinds of devastating effects. It ultimately will render those communities uninhabitable and threatens the continuity and security of these islanders. And so by taking the Australian government to the UN, this is a, an escalation that is an attempt to speak the truth in a different way of the, our situation. That, as we were suggesting before, the government is failing to do what most people consider to be one of its primary duties, namely protect the safety and well-being of the people in this land. And in this case, it is some of the most marginal and vulnerable and historically excluded people some of the original owners of this land, who are the ones most being affected by our government's ongoing policy failure around climate. Look, the only thing I'd add, I think, is that um, it's not just happening in Australia, also in the Netherlands and in the United States, there are lawsuits being brought by citizens against their government, uh, not through the UN, uh, but more directly through their courts to go, and particularly by young people saying that your inaction is destroying our future. And therefore, you're culpable and we ought to be, well, I guess in the worst case scenario, we should just be compensated for it. But in the in what they're actually arguing for, the government has a, an obligation to its citizens to be taking much greater action on climate change. Uh, it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years, I guess, how these cases go and whether that begins a, a bit of a rolling trend. Yes, in a sense, it's citizens seeking to influence the state through ways other than the parliament and the government, which Mm. have been sort of the the typical focus for advocacy and action, but through litigation. Though in this case, by going to the UN, this is somewhat indirect in that the UN Human Rights Commission doesn't have jurisdiction over Australia, but it can set an important legal legal principle in international law and can bring real embarrassment for the Australian government. Yeah, and Um, I think even in those overseas cases, you know, it's quite 
Likely, I would say that if the cases are successful, you know, governments always have the option of changing the law so that they're not breaking the law by the next case, but it does start to set up that very public and strong dynamic that the public is expecting the government to act. And as you were talking about, the shame of, of not acting, again, it's shifting that story and just highlighting the fact that we all want to think we're being looked after, but clearly we're not by any reasonable standard. And when there's water washing through your house... Mm. And you know that not just the government hasn't taken necessary steps to protect you. I mean, one of the things they're looking for is uh, investment in the kind of adaptation measures, seawalls and things mm. that can enable them to continue living on their traditional lands for longer. So not just the government has failed to take those steps, but that our climate and energy policies have actively contributed to accelerating, mm. to worsening this problem. Yeah. So it's not simply the government's inaction, but the government's ongoing harms to its own people, to say nothing of the rest of the earth. That's what's at stake here. I mean, this group of Torres Strait Islanders accused the Australian government of breaching multiple articles of the UN Human Rights Declaration, including the right to culture, the right to be free from arbitrary interference with privacy, family and home, and the right to life. So I think this is also particularly poignant or timely with, as I just said, we're having recently passed Marbo Day with Eddie Marbo being you know, a very well-known Torres Strait Islander whose battles to secure legal rights to his Torres Strait Islander homelands made history with that High Court case in the early 1990s. Uh, and again, we have here more Torres Strait Islanders seeking to protect the legal right they have to live in uh, a place undespoiled by the, the ravages of government policy failure. Mm. Now, Jason, in addition to the other hats that you wear that we heard about at the start of the episode, there's one more I didn't mention, which is that you are also a performance poet. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with us one of your poems. (laughs) I'm sure. Just laughing. I'm not sure if you can actually call yourself a poet if you don't make a living off it any more than I could call myself an author just because I have three books I've written given that nobody's actually published them. Oh, well, there's an um, assumption of capitalism, yeah. isn't there? That unless you're making money from it, it exactly. doesn't count. Exactly. Of course exactly. you can call yourself a poet. <laughs> yeah, and look, you know, the poems... Apologies to those poets I know who do actually make a living from <laughs> it and who may be offended by the fact that I just allowed one of the plebs into the inner sanctum. <laughs> yes, well, I didn't even know it was possible until I met some people that actually make a living off poetry. That was amazing. Um, so, yeah, kind of... I just quickly preface it by saying, you know, really it started as a, a silly thing I'd do to put a few poems in talks I gave just to stop people's eyes glazing over. Pretty much, you know, Dr. Seuss and Pam Ayers are the, my level of knowledge about poetry and how it works. But I've also found it kind of cathartic to, uh, you know, both of us live in the world of research and having to be able to justify what you say and, uh, you know, the slow process that can be sometimes and to just get up and say two minutes without footnotes can be quite refreshing. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll have a crack at this one. Um, when I was younger, I used to actually write poems with footnotes. I, I don't think I really understood. <laughs> I was going to say, I have written one with about 12 footnotes. <laughs> and just for the audience's benefit, I'm actually doing, I'm not reading this off a piece of paper, so that hopefully makes it slightly more impressive. But uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to practice ahead of the Bellingen Poetry Slam on Friday. So back when I was a minister in a congregation, I caused some consternation leading to a little bit of confrontation when they heard me use the C word. I used it not just once, this was no accidental slip, I used it a whole bunch of times, I really let it rip. I thought I'd get away with it, I'm middle class and white, and anyone will tell you that I'm usually polite. 
But three wise men anonymously said that it was them or me. They wouldn't stand for it anymore, so I was shown very politely out the door. That C word causes such offence. And that's fair enough, I guess. Christ was very offensive. He left that temple in a mess, kicking over the tables and whipping those who oppress. And I mean, what else can you do when you have to preach from the Bible each week and Christ and his mother just keep banging on about injustice and hypocrisy and greed? And at Christmas time, we read about their life as refugees. It's not my fault the little child didn't grow up meek and mild. It's not my fault he said we must forgive to be forgiven if we're self-righteous assholes who assume we're off to heaven. And that paradoxically God sends rain on the wicked and ungrateful. So to be kids of the one in heaven, we must all be merciful, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Christ wanted us to do stuff, or at least to try. And our leaders to lead us in justice and in compassion in this world of refugees. There'd be no rotting in detention and we'd stick to 1.5 degrees if we only had a Christian Prime Minister. I know what you're thinking, we've already had a few. We've got lots of thoughts and prayers and that's going to continue if I had to take a punt with our Pray for Rain Prime Minister and his Ah, coal won't hurt you stunt. Well, neither does a cigarette till you burn it, you smarmy member. And we must remember that for every disappointing member and even prime member, there's a Miriam and a Byron and a Jackie and a Jess. There's Lisa with one eye and Lisa with two eyes and there's most of you, I'd guess. There's Tony and there's Rachel and there's Pierre and there's Pete and there's people living all up and down your street. You've never heard of them, and they've never heard of you. There's Christians, Muslims, atheists, Jews, straights, LGBs and TIQs, all us scraggly little mustard bushes getting up off our tushes. So whether your C word is Christ or compassion or climate or community or country, say your C word loud and clear. Live your C word and let's put the fear of true democracy right up the jacksy of the fossil fuel plutocracy. <laughs> And you might have noticed that the host of our show tonight actually gets a little hat tip in there. <laughs> that was nice. Perhaps my C word is composting. Composting, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> well, it seems time to move on to our third and final segment, What Do We Do? Because we don't simply want to be observers of the world, but participants in it, members of the great community of creation seeking to be caretakers of our common home. In this section, we typically do three things. We look at an immediate action that we can each do today. We consider some source of further information and exploration of some of the topics that we've discussed. And then we'll also suggest something that's a bit more ambitious, something that's more than merely symbolic, but may involve some, some deeper struggles and some more direct confronting of our tendency towards identity protective cognition. So an immediate action that you can do today that relates pretty directly to our final story is that if you go to ourislandsourhome.com.au, just all one word, Our Islands, Our Home, you'll find there a petition that you can sign uh, put together by the Torres Strait Islander Climate Justice Case petitioning the Australian government to take the plight uh, of people losing their homes to rising seas quite seriously. So if you go there, you can sign that petition. And online petitions, they are worth about as much time as they take. That is, they, they have limited value, but they do have some value. But of course, you can do them very quickly. I think that's a good one to do. Our second suggestion, a book or film or podcast recommendation. I'm going to go with a film that Jason and I actually saw today, courtesy of Uniting Earth, a film called 2040. And Jason, do you want to tell us a little bit about that film and what you appreciated about it? Yeah, um, I mean, one thing I appreciated was that it was Australian. Um, 
and uh, so it was interesting to hear, both hear the Australian accent, but also see a number of Australian experts being you know referred to. The imaginative way the film was constructed was helpful. It's basically uh, the the filmmaker's uh, attempt to present to his daughter the positive possibilities of the year 2040 if we take the technology that's currently available and actually use it and expand it in the way that we need to. So it's kind of uh, flips between now and the future with him uh, talking to his daughter and showing by various, you know, I thought quite good animations what the world could actually look like. You know, we were talking earlier about flipping the world view like it, it's a bit of a contribution towards that i think that was its, certainly its strength expanding the imagination of yeah. what's possible even with just what we have available today he called it an exercise in fact-based imagination yeah you know it was really an example of that quote i've forgotten who it's from the future is already here it's just unevenly distributed saying that yeah if we take some of the best ideas that are already around and apply them on a large scale then we can actually reach a point by 2040 where global atmospheric carbon dioxide levels have stabilized and begin to fall it's a communication to his four-year-old daughter that is meant to inspire her and uh, reassure her that the possibilities are there another world is possible and here are the solutions that we need to address this pressing issue Another positive thing about it was that it is actually suitable for that younger audience. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know about four, but, uh, you know, I know a lot of early teenagers that have absorbed enough from school and the general media and their parents to know there's something really bad going on, you know, that generates the kind of anxiety that's perfectly healthy. But this movie included that. But unlike others, I guess, which have a whole lot of stuff about the problems and then a quick pat solution at the end, like changing light globes... This focuses more on, you know, yeah, the imagination. So I can imagine younger people going, yeah, that could be my future, being involved in expanding kelp forests or whatever it might be. Uh, certainly, you know, I'd be happy to take my kids along to it and, you know, have the conversations afterwards about it. That's right. Both expanding their imaginations while, you know, for those who might actually be looking for something to give their life to, there are, there are lots of possibilities there of yeah. genuine contributions that can be made to making the world a better place while also addressing climate change. Yeah. One thing about it was that because it had a lot of the personal story and things in it, which I thought was good, it actually didn't cover as many possibilities as it could have. Like as I was sitting there, I was thinking, oh, what about aluminium batteries or hydrogen or, you know, a whole lot of other things that we know are out there. So it's, it's certainly not a comprehensive survey of all of the technologies that exist today. But it, I, I think for people who don't know much about it, it covered yeah enough. That's right. And so I think it would also be good for people who perhaps haven't followed climate too closely, but have followed it closely enough to really be in a point of feeling like this is just in a too hard basket. There's there's not much we can do. And we should really just focus on other things because we're kind of stuck with whatever the consequences are going to be. It really does show the possibility of following a different path. And even just some of the graphics you know, were enough for that, even without the words of like, oh, yeah, could look like that. Uh, and I think, you know, the question that he then flips back to the audience of, well, what's your 2040 what do you think it looks like is a really helpful one you know being part of lots of groups that use that approach of put yourself in the future and tell your current self what it looks like and how you got there it's a really useful tool i've only looked at the website a bit but it looks like it's quite well set up for people that want to respond to something there that aren't already responding in some way to kind of take some first steps so yeah it's definitely a useful contribution to the the range of resources out there to try and engage people that are not fully engaged 
as you just implied, it doesn't give a comprehensive account of either the solutions or of the uh, the issue itself. It gives a quite an accessible um, and somewhat quirky brief little introduction uh, yeah. to climate science, but doesn't really go into exploring the dangers and the damage already being done. In the way that David Attenborough's recent climate documentary really brings home at a visceral level some of the already visible harms mm. um, and the urgency of our current predicament. And I found, I found the balance between them good because watching the Attenborough documentary, even though I know it all, but it just brought that anger bubbling to the surface in me again. Of how can this be allowed to be happening so I was definitely in the right headspace to be reminded of the other stuff that I already know, that there are solutions there and, you know, we can actually imagine a, a different world. So, yeah, I found they worked quite well together and I imagine they would for, for a lot of people. Um, the one that kind of Attenborough really emphasises, this is actually a really <laughs> big problem that's going on and maybe I wouldn't show my kids that documentary. But, yeah, yeah, the two worked quite well together, I think. Perhaps another part of 2040 that was somewhat glossed over or a bit light on were some of the political barriers to implementing these solutions. So we may well already have the solutions that are technologically viable and economically affordable, and yet we have a system to set up to thwart their implementation. We have a system set up to maintain the status quo, as we've been saying, where powerful vested interests want to keep on profiting from fossil fuels and uh, energy sources that are burning the future. And it didn't really, it hinted at those barriers, but didn't really address them head on. And I think, again, to get a more fully orbed picture of the challenge that we face, this is an important piece of the puzzle to know that these solutions exist and are genuine possibilities at a technological and social and economic level. But there's still a question of who makes the decisions and who holds the power. Yes, I, I think he did a good job of pointing out that the tactics used by the fossil fuel industry are similar to the ones by the cigarette industry and so on. But yeah, he didn't didn't have much time to explore that whole hourglass kind of thing. So, for example, when he talks about the need for equality between you know men and women, and particularly uh, empowering girls, which is true and the, the research is well established. But he didn't talk much about the fact that most girls that are needing empowerment are part of that very skinny part of the wine glass neck. So the resources that we're trying to bring to bear to empower people and then deal with climate change are only a fraction of the resources that actually exist in the world because a small number of people are hoarding the rest. So the economic analysis was, you would want to add a third documentary maybe to take that up. I guess in an hour and a half, you've got to make decisions about it. So yes, it did focus on the solutions, you're right, without the analysis of, well, if they're there, why haven't we just done them already? So recommended viewing. Yeah. Keep on learning, keep on building a deeper understanding of the world that we live in and the possibilities and barriers to action. Yeah, and no doubt it'll be available online soon so you can have some friends over and watch it with your kids and not feel like you're subjecting them to another overwhelmingly doom and gloom one that people tend to try and steer away from. <laughs> if you are looking for a quick video that does bring that economic analysis in really well, just on YouTube, if you look for the Global Wealth Inequality video, what you never knew, you never knew, and Byron, I have a link to that. It's only four minutes, but it really lays out some of that stuff. There's a few other videos on YouTube that do a great job of it that are maybe a little, a, you know, useful little addition to 2040 to round out that part of the story. Yeah, that's right, where we understand the need, not just to implement some of these great technologies, but also to tip that wine glass over, perhaps. Yep. Our third suggestion relates to our more ambitious life commitment towards justice, something that is going to help us in the struggle to change some of these structures and narratives and the deep barriers to action 
And our suggestion for this episode goes back to that Common Grace National Reconciliation Week set of resources. Our suggestion is to go and read through those resources, understanding a bit more of the history of this place, but also paying attention to the suggestions for action at the end of each day's reflection. Each of the reflections has a number of suggested actions you might wish to take, from a simple and immediate, could be as simple as giving some money to Grass Tree Gathering, a collection of Aboriginal Christian leaders, through to the more challenging and life-changing. I recommend checking them all out. They're a great resource with lots of practical steps to take in response. If we're going to walk courageously together, as per the theme of this year's National Reconciliation Week, if we're going to be grounded in truth, then it's going to come at the cost of a stable, secure identity, insofar as our existing identity is based on lies. Lies about the past, lies about the current state of the planet, lies about our society and about ourselves. If we're going to resist indulging in identity-protective cognition, if we're going to embrace truth-protective cognition, then that could well be identity-threatening, identity-transforming. So hold on to your hats. The truth can hurt. But as Jesus said, there is no other path to liberation. Only the truth can set us free. And that brings us to the end of our episode. This is the bit where the music comes in and you start to fumble for the controls of your phone or device and where I tell you to share, comment, subscribe and do the things that make this little community grow. And thank you, Jason. I'm so glad you took this opportunity while you're in town to catch up and sit down together. Thanks for the film today, for your persistence in voicing uncomfortable truths and for your honesty with your own struggles in living them out. No worries, Brian. It's uh, always a pleasure to see you face-to-face instead of <laughs> via video. So much of our relationship has been conducted at a distance. It is, it is great to sit down together. And thanks, listeners, for sticking with this little podcast experiment, one in which we're continuing to dig into realities that stink and are sometimes, frankly, repulsive. Composting teaches us that what seems least pleasant can be the best place to see fresh ground being made. So let's get our hands dirty. Our producer is Simon Bunstead. I'm Byron Smith, and this is The Good Dirt. <laughs>